The text for this morning is from the book of Philippians, beginning chapter 1, second half of verse 18. The Apostle Paul writes, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live as Christ and to die is gain. If I, am to be, to, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for your word. We rejoice at your word. We need your word to teach us, to guide us, to comfort us, to assure us. We pray that your word through your spirit would do the same this morning. Give us what we need to hear, Lord. Teach us. Show us how we should uh, view this life and the life beyond, that we may be faithful servants in all that you've called us to. I ask, Lord, that you would help me this morning as I preach your word, that you would give me clarity um, and strength to deliver your word with faithfulness that you might be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. It's good to be with you all again. Um, like a, a lot of people, I've been riveted to the news out of Ukraine this last week. Um, it's hard to turn away. Uh, it's hard to really move on to anything else. And probably like a lot of you, just the same kind of mixture of responses, shock, sadness, anger. Now, as time goes on, it's more of a sense of confusion about what's actually happening. The, the fog of war lays heavy on Ukraine right now, and it's really hard to know what's actually going on over there. But in the midst of all those different things, there's also these, these moments um, of inspiration, these moments in which you see displays of individual and, and group and national character that, that stands out in the midst of all this chaos. Um, you have tremendous acts of courage and sacrifice. You've probably seen or heard about the president of Ukraine uh, when things were just starting and there was offers for him to be evacuated. His response was, I need ammunition, not a ride. Um, this is a, a young man with two kids and a wife that is choosing to stay behind with his people. You see it in the citizens who are taking up arms to defend their, their countries, their neighborhoods, their neighbors. You see it in the grandmother who, who is alternately shaming and taunting a Russian soldier. You have no place here. You have no business here. Go home. Each of those, just tremendous acts of courage and nobility and selflessness. You see it in the acts of kindness that are displayed all around. I think the one that's touched me the most is all the bordering countries that have opened their borders, uh, not just opened their borders, but welcomed and provided for the refugees that are pouring over. 
in Poland and Slovakia and Hungary and Romania, Moldova. Um, we're seeing in the midst of this tremendous character. The worst of times often brings that out, often brings the best in people. Or, or someone wrote it, evil, evil often leaves virtue with few good choices. It's important for us to see those virtues on display, to see that kind of character on display, because character is important. It's not just what you believe, it's what kind of a person you are shaped by that. And that really does unintentionally relate to the passage that we're looking at today. Because in this passage that we're looking at, the curtain is pulled back a bit, and we see something of the character of Paul, also in uncertain times at the moment. I, I hope you'll indulge me. I'm going to do a little bit of a survey, a little historical survey. This is, this is my meat and potatoes. I love this stuff, and I know that's not everybody's thing, but I think it's really helpful to get the background and think about how this all affects what Paul is writing now. So I guess I don't even know why I'm asking permission, because I'm preaching. So anyways, just indulge me. Um, but Paul, we know, is writing from prison. Philippians is one of the prison epistles, and it's probably the, the prison in Rome, as chronicled by Luke in Acts chapter 28. He mentions in there the Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard was this elite group of soldiers that were often used as the emperor's personal guard, which both gives us a clue as to Paul's location, but also to his importance. This is no small thing. Paul wasn't pulled over for a traffic fine. He is, in, he is in real trouble here. But we learn, and we know if we follow the scriptures, that the main reason why he was in prison was because of the gospel. But, but I want to get into the background of what that actually means. So we have to go all the way back into the uh, later chapters of Acts to figure out, piece together what's going on. It goes back to what happened between Paul and the Jews in Jerusalem. Paul went to Jerusalem knowing that he would be arrested, knowing that he had handed over to the Jews, but he went there with four other men. The brothers in the city, uh, James and the others, uh, sent with Paul four men who had Nazarite vows that Paul was going to pay their, their dues and, and go through the process of cleansing so that Paul would be above reproach in everything he did. Nevertheless, Paul had enemies in the city. They hated Paul. They hated the fact that he had turned from their rejection of Christ to now be one of the most powerful preachers of Christ in the whole region. And they were looking for ways to trip him up, to get him. And so when they saw Paul entering the temple with these men, they stirred up the crowd saying that Paul was bringing Gentiles, bringing the unclean into the temple. Here's another example of how Paul is trying to tear everything that we Jews believe down. And you know what we're supposed to do with them? We're supposed to kill them. This man is a threat. This man is an enemy. This man is a danger. So the crowd gets whipped up, and Paul would have been killed right there and then if he hadn't been rescued by some Roman soldiers who saw all this unfolding. But it's when the soldiers realized that Paul was a Roman citizen that they brought him from there to the governor of Judea, which at the time was Felix. And so Paul stands trial before the governor, and the governor finds nothing wrong with what Paul had done, despite all the accusations that the Jewish leaders were bringing to him. But... He left him in prison for two years, probably realizing how difficult and challenging the situation would be and how he might rule on things. And so it took two years for Felix's replacement, Festus, to review the case. 
And he even went so far as to bring King Agrippa in. And again, they found nothing wrong with what Paul was saying, nothing deserving death, and were about to release him when Paul made an appeal to appear before Caesar. That was his right as a Roman citizen. And he knew, the reason behind this was that he knew if that they set him free, that the Jews were ready to take him and kill him at that point. His only recourse at this point was to appeal to Caesar. And so he was granted that. And since that time, Paul has been traveling and then put under house arrest waiting to see Caesar. So, so consider that for a moment. That brings us up to speed where we are now in this letter. Paul is in prison or under house arrest at least. He's facing the challenges of being held in prison, being cooped up, confined. I mean, think about that with a person like Paul. I mean, being confined alone is bad enough for anyone. But Paul is a restless person, always moving, always wanting to do more. Stuck, unable to move. On top of which, Luke tells us that he had to pay for everything, for his, his board, for his clothing and all that stuff. There's also the challenge they face of being dependent on bureaucracy. How long is this going to take? How long does it take the government to do anything? Think it was better back then? Probably, probably not. How will it turn out? This is all presuming that Caesar will be favorable to him, a Jew, though a Roman citizen. Why should Caesar care? Oftentimes justice went to the person with the highest amount of money. Would Paul survive this? And then finally, there's also and I say this as an older person, the challenge of age. This is in the early 60s that Paul is writing this. Paul is probably in his 60s or so right now. There's a lot of miles on him, figuratively and literally. Paul has to be tired. Paul has to be weary of this. Paul has to be seeing the end of the race in sight. And yet in spite of all this, Paul wrote to encourage the Philippian church. I mean, Paul's tone and writing suggested the Philippians were pretty shaken, both, both for his sake as well as for theirs. I mean, you can imagine, right? Here's, here's a church that has the privilege of an apostle being their friend, of being their pastor, their planter, their, their theologian in residence, their dinner buddy. We know Paul. We love Paul. Paul's our guys. We don't want to lose him. But also, what do you do when you lose an apostle? How do you replace that? Moreover, if they aren't afraid to kill an apostle, what will they do with us? So I, I think they're scared, nervous for Paul's sake and, and for themselves as well, rightly. But Paul responds with encouragement and comfort. I've been praying for you, first of all, he says. But then he goes on to say something remarkable that probably they, they would not have expected. God's been at work here. I don't want you to be scared. I don't want you to be nervous because God's been working. He's used this as an opportunity, actually, to spread the gospel throughout the prison. There isn't anyone among the praetorium that hasn't heard about Christ or about the gospel. God's word has been unstoppable here. Moreover, he's also used my experience here to encourage others to preach the gospel with boldness. If his enemies sought to quiet Paul, they've only spread the gospel further. Praise the Lord. I'm okay. And then finally he concludes and leads into our section here is that whatever happens, Paul says, I'm not afraid. I'm confident that I will be delivered from here. 
He wrote that knowing that there were only two ways that could possibly happen. Either he'd be released, or he'd die, or be put to death. My only hope is that Christ will be glorified in me. But I'm not afraid. I'm okay. God is with me. Which then leads into really one of the all-time great passages in the Bible. To live is Christ. To die is gain. I want, I want to spend some time with that. And then when he says, says after that, um, this, this section, this, this line is so potent. This is Paul's cost-benefit analysis, if you will, of the situation. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Living is great. I'm okay with living. I would like to get outside these walls. I'd like to be free. Because if I live, I'll be able to glorify Jesus by continuing in my apostolic work. I'll be able to continue preaching the gospel, winning people to Jesus. I'll be able to continue establishing and strengthening the churches. And as we know from the end of Romans, I'll be able to go out to places where the gospel hasn't yet been heard. Paul has plans. He will use that time well. I would love to get out of here because there's work to be done. But i got to be honest with you, there's something better than freedom. Death. Death to me isn't scary. To die is gain. There's something better there. Because if I die, I get to go home. I I hope we hear that. That's not... That's not the words of a depressed or a hopeless person. That's the words of someone who has a different view of things as a Christian who knows Christ, who knows what is the real end here? Where is my real home? What really matters? And we're seeing that here on this page. To die is gain. Not because I can't handle it anymore, but as I get older, as I continue on, as I see God's faithfulness at work all around me, I'm ready to lay lay it down. I can go now. I want to be home. I want to be with Christ. Since the time he got me, I've been driven by a desire to know him. To know him in his death and to know him in his resurrection. Because I know when I die, I will not stay dead. He will raise me. I will see him. And I will be with him forever. That is far better than any good thing I can enjoy in this life. So I'd love to be free. I'd love to continue working. But if it's a choice between that and going to be with Christ, it's not even close. You hear hear that, the echo of what, what... the writer of Hebrews is saying in Hebrews 11, verse 13, talking about those who died in the faith. They all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen, seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would, not, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's where Paul's heart is. It's not even close. I want to go home. I'm ready. 
So that's the first part. The second part is what's been really caught my attention is really kind of the burden of this path, of this sermon for me. He goes immediately from there to say this, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I could either live or I could die. Dying would be better because I'd be with Christ. And yet, I don't know which I would prefer right now. That doesn't make sense to me. Does it make sense to you? And there's something, something very right about wanting to be with Christ, right? So why is Paul faltering here? Why is Paul wavering? Because he could own a house or own a car or get married or do other things that enjoy this life? No, he, he's seeing something here that's like, but at the same time, I'm torn. I have this opportunity, and yet I'm torn between being with Christ and staying here. I'm hard-pressed between the two. Don't get me wrong, I think Paul is saying. I really do want to be with Christ. I really do want to be with Jesus. But there's still work for me here. You need me. Your need for me, your need for encouragement and teaching and counsel and presence is greater than my need to go home. And so by the time Paul has worked through his thoughts, he ends with being convinced that God would keep him alive for that very purpose. I will get out of here because God wants me to be here for your sake. In fact, that Paul seems excited about this and not resentful or sad is striking. Something about the apostle's character there that's, that's compelling I see this clearly. I'm ready to go. And yet, it's more needful for me to be here with you. And I want to be here with you. I love you. I care for you. I see your need. I can help. There's fruitful labor here for me to do. And realizing that, I know that's where God wants me. So I'm not afraid. I will see you again. And so, I want to ask a couple questions here. First of all, I want to ask the question that's just so obvious on this page. What is our view of heaven? How do we look at those things? What, what are we looking forward to? Where is our hope right now, ultimately? Are we looking forward to anything? It's easy, isn't it? In this day and age, with, with all, all the things that we enjoy here, the beauty of this location... Um, the friends, the families, everything that's close in hand that we can feel, good coffee, all the stuff that money can afford, whatever. I mean, this, this is a wonderful world that God has made. Do we even look ahead? Or is heaven kind of the fullest enjoyment of this life? Getting married, having kids, seeing our kids marry and having grandkids, endless Christmases and Thanksgivings together as a family. Is that heaven for us? Because heaven, the heaven that Jesus preached about is just so far removed, seemingly, from our life. Or do we, do we turn heaven into an abstraction, where heaven is the place where there is no more sin, no more suffering? I won't be short anymore. I won't be too tall anymore. I'll have a good singing voice. People like me. Chance to see our loved ones again. 
Because what Paul sees at the end is Jesus. Not that those other things don't matter, but if Jesus doesn't matter, then nothing else will. It's because Christ is there that all those other things have meaning. If you get heaven without Christ, you have nothing. But he's the one I want to know because he saved me. He feels, Paul feels that burden of, I want to know this God. I've loved this God from a distance. I've loved this Savior from a distance. I want to meet him. I want to know him. I want to spend eternity in his presence because he's been so good and so faithful to me. Is that our view? What lies beyond death is so much more than all the things that we can enjoy in this life. We will see Jesus himself. We will know him. We will live in his kingdom forever. Is that better to you than anything else? Is that your aim? Have we made this our home or are we looking to another kingdom, a different kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, that that's where we're aiming towards? That's our hope. That's what helps us to live as strangers and aliens here, even as the world is in chaos, even as we see our own country seemingly falling apart. Do we understand this is not our ultimate home? That we have something better The Lord of life, almighty God, the creator of all things, stands at the end of our lives waiting to receive us. How much does that occupy our thoughts, our vision? How much does that drive us on? Can I just read to you how Paul writes about this? Paul, a little bit later on, chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's where I'm heading. And yet he loved so many people, didn't he? He did so many things, and yet that was his ultimate aim. That's where I want to go. Is that our vision? Is that our aim? But also, there's a a danger there that, that is the other part of this equation. There's a danger that in focusing on what's ahead, that can lead to sort of a self centered kind of Christianity that is indifferent to anyone else. I want to get to heaven. I want to be with Jesus. I've got my ticket punch, and good luck to the rest of you. Sorry that there's suffering. Sorry that there's poor. Sorry that there's war. But I believe in Jesus, and I want to get there. And God will take care of you somehow. That's not how Paul saw things either. I am here to serve. I am here to show mercy to those who need mercy. I'm here to show grace to those who need grace. I'm here to love those who need to be loved. I'm here to teach those who need to be taught. I'm here to give my life to those who have nobody. I'm here to lead a church that needs guidance. We are called, all of us, to fruitful service of others, to be other-directed whether that's building up the body of Christ, whether it's caring for those in need, whether it's loving our neighbors, et cetera, et cetera, 
Never mind the fact that there are people still who do not yet know Christ. It is improper for us to focus on what we get in heaven at the expense of all those around us who are dying. That's not how Christ walked the earth. That's not how the apostles walked the earth. That's not how we should walk the earth. There should be in us the same kind of tension as Paul where we want to go home. I'm tired of this. I'm weary of this. There's something better. That's what I want. And yet, there are people around me who need me. I'm here for a reason. I've been given what God's given me for a reason. To benefit, to bless, to help others. We need to feel that just as strongly. We have to, we have to somehow find the, talent, the, the balance between those two. How much do we see the need around us? How much are we compelled to meet that? How much duty do we feel towards others? That, like Paul, it would hold our desire to go to be with Christ in check, like it did with him. What should I choose? I love Christ. I want to go home, and yet I see the need. How can I leave? It reminds me of of, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer... uh, was a theologian, pastor, uh, leading up to the Second World War, born in Germany, went to the States for a while to go to seminary, pastored a church there, and had the ability to move back and forth quite a bit. And as Germany descended into um, the craziness and chaos of the Third Reich, there were many of his peers who were leaving the country. And his response was essentially, how could I leave? <laughs> how could I leave my people? In effect, I would be ashamed if I left. Because I'd be caring for myself only, not for these people. And so he stayed, and ultimately at the cost of his life. I think there's something of that in what Paul is saying. I think there's something of that that ought to be in us. We can leave, and we ought to want to leave. And yet, there should be something that holds us back, because we are needed here. I think there's, there's a little bit of an age thing involved here in terms of these two things. I, I would say um, I'm balanced, generally speaking, that for younger Christians, the challenge is on fixing your eyes on heaven because it's so far away, so, so far, like many lifetimes away, right? If you're 20, you're going to live another 380 years or so, it seems. So you've got stuff to think about. You know, go to school, get a job, get married, blah, 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 have, enjoy all the good things of life. And so you should. Um, but oftentimes it comes at the expense of looking towards what's ahead. And so this is all we think about. This is all we care about. This is all we love. This is our home. And we need that balance that Paul gives of what's ahead is better. It's not something to be desired. It's someone to be desired that should impel us forward. By the same token, I think it's older Christians who need more of the focus on those around them. As you get older, as God is teaching you, both through the word and through experiences and through his church, you are more and more needed in the church. You're more and more needed around you. You have a lifetime of wisdom and experience to share with your brothers and sisters, let alone your neighbors. And yet oftentimes the temptation is to As people of older age retire, so older Christians tend to retire from service. When this is when they're needed most. 
Yes, it's easier to long for Christ and look forward to Christ when you're near the end, but that is when you are needed the most here. We need that balance between the two. And that mentality that Paul has, ready to die but willing to serve. I know what it is I really want, but this is where I'm needed. So my prayer for us is first of all that we would have that vision of Paul. This is where I'm going. This is what I really want. This is better than here. It's easy in days like this to see that. But it needs to overwhelm. It needs to be... Being with Christ is not better than a world that's currently at war. That's that's not good enough because anywhere is better than a world at war. This is better than the world in its best days. By light years. Because Christ is there. And that's where we belong. Is that our vision? Because that is the vision of people who are marked by faith in God. Do we give our time and thoughts to that? But secondly... Do do we balance that out with a deep compassion for those around us? For our neighbors, for our brothers and sisters. That we truly love, that we deeply love, that we would give up what we desire for their sake. That God would be glorified. May Lord help us, thirdly, to strike that balance that Paul strikes here. What should I choose? I'm torn, but I see the need. And so this is where I'm happy to stay until God calls me home. What peace to be in that place, right? To to know that you're useful and to know that your life is in God's hands and what you desire will come to you in its proper time. In the meantime, there's work to be done, fruitful work to be done. That's my hope for us. Let's pray. Lord, we are so shaped by the world that our our vision of what lies ahead is fuzzy and dim. We need, Lord, the clarity of Paul or the people in Hebrews 11 who saw clearly their status as aliens and strangers. Not American Christians, not European Christians, not not any sort of hyphenated Christian. They belong somewhere else. This is not our home. And not only recognizing that we don't belong here, but that we belong to a place that's better, and that's where we want to go back to. That's what we're longing for. Because ultimately, Lord, our desire is to see you, to be in your presence, to have this race over, and all that comes with it live in a world where there is no more sin, no more curse, no more more sorrow, where we know you, our creator, our God, our savior, forever. Lord, also please continue to work in our hearts, to open our hearts to those in need around us, to care deeply for those around us, to have compassion and mercy, to be generous and sacrificial. Lord, you've done so much in this body that way, and I pray that that will continue. But Lord, may we, may we reach that place where Paul is, of tension between desiring to go home and desiring to be useful here for your namesake. That's where we would find, that's where we would find our balance too, Lord. 
So please help us, Lord, that you would be glorified. That you'd be glorified in how we worship and glorified in how we served. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's stand together and confess what we believe. Christians, what do we believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into the grave. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. This time I want to remind you that you can continue your worship in the, the offering of tithes. Uh, you can give through our website or to a uh, person with the box at our greeters table in the back there. Now let's, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, you alone deserve to be the object of our desires in every respect. You are everything to us. From, from the wonder of you making us, bringing us into being, to loving us, blessing us even when we were turned against you, saving us at the cost of your son, and now not ashamed to call us your sons and daughters. Not ashamed to create a home for us that we will come to someday and be with you forever. In the meantime, Lord, you've given us everything we need through your great and precious promises for life and godliness. Lord, we are a privileged people above all else. And we see that as we pray. Lord, we lift up our hearts to you in prayer to grieve to call for mercy on behalf of the people of Ukraine as well as the people of Russia and those surrounding that are affected by this war. Or we call out for peace that you bring this war to an end, that you would keep it from going any further, that the madness that drives this would be stopped, that arms would be laid down, and that peace could reign again. We pray for your churches, especially, Lord, in both countries and surrounding countries. We praise you, Lord for the courage that's been displayed again and again by your people in those places, who at the risk of their own lives have continued to lead worship to you, as well as to love those and care for those around them, to be a, a light in a dark time. Lord, continue to give them grace and mercy and strength and courage, that they may continue fearlessly to proclaim your word um, in the midst of great danger. And pray, Lord, through this, Somehow, some way, eyes would be opened, hearts would be softened, and that people would turn to you in fear, in repentance, and in humility, seeking your mercy, knowing that for Christ's sake, you are willing and ready to forgive them and to welcome them home. 
Lord, we don't understand how you work in situations like these. Pray for your people who are discouraged by that fact, who are, who are tempted to doubt because of that fact, to trust that you are God and you will do what is right even though we do not see it. That over all of this, you are somehow in control and you will be glorified through all that happens. Well, Lord, give us the eyes of faith to see it. And Lord, may we continue to pray for these people who are affected by, by this conflict and that you bring peace. Lord, we continue to pray for the Harris family. Thank you for a successful couple of weeks in St. Louis, for time with friends and family and former church. And pray that you would bless their return trip home. Pray that Craig would be refreshed, Jen would be refreshed, and the rest of the family um, for the work back here. And uh, we're excited to receive them back and, and hear about uh, what you did over their break. We pray for the Hernandez family this morning, Lord. We ask for your blessing on them, blessing on their health, blessing on their marriage, and, and for guidance for them with upcoming decisions. But we are so thankful for them, Lord, and we so encouraged by, by their work in the community and their love for their son and love for each other um, and what they mean to us as our fellow brothers and sisters. Lord, please bless and guide them during this season. We pray for this church, Lord. We pray that we would be a light during these times, that we'd be a place of hope, that we'd be a place of encouragement, that we'd be a place of love towards those in need. And Lord, that we would continue to grow in our ability to build each other up and to encourage each other in the faith. May we continue to be a praying church, Lord, that seeks your face always, that is willing to give things to you when we are, when we are at our weakest points. Lord, we, we continue to ask for your blessing on Emmanuel Haskell Christian School. Again, thankful for the boys and girls that attend the school and for the families that stand behind them. Lord, bless their education here. Bless what they are learning, but more importantly, what they are learning about you through what is taught and through the lives of the teachers that are, that are there with them. We pray, Lord, for those who don't know you and for their families, Lord, that somehow through this, the gospel would go out. And so we pray with hope that this would not just be effective in training young people, but effective in spreading the gospel for your glory. And Lord, I pray that you bless this week ahead. Again, Lord, grant us grace and wisdom and kindness and compassionate hearts that we would shine as your people in all the places where you send us, that you would be glorified, Lord, in our midst. It's in Jesus' name we pray, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand and sing. Come for the feast is spread. Hark to the call, come all, come all. Come to the living bread. Offer to all, heed the call, the call. Come. 
Come where the fountain flows, healing for all thy woes, thy woes. Come to the crimson tide, wait in the river of life, of life. Come to the throne of grace, all who would win the race, the race. Come and boldly draw near, let us now tarry here, tarry here. Come and boldly draw near. Let us now tarry here, tarry here. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let's give thanks to the Lord our God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, prepare our hearts as we prepare to come to the table. Uh, Lord, that we, our hearts would be lifted up to you in, in worship, in ador- adoration, and gratitude for what you have done. And the awe, Lord, that you would invite us to tables such as we are. None of us here is deserving. But you call us, you summon us out of your mercy, out of your kindness to sinners, because you desire us to sit at the table with you. So Lord, again, I ask that you prepare our hearts to come. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.